Grab a Bible if you have one. Luke 7 is where we're going to be. You can also look on the screen. Luke chapter 7 in the New Testament. We'll start in verse 36, and you can follow along with us. It says this. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So as we look at this passage, we're introduced to two people. The first person is Simon the Pharisee. We find out his name in the next verse, but it's Simon the Pharisee. And we've talked about this just a few weeks ago, Pharisees. That in that day, these were a group of people who devoted their whole lives to fulfilling the law. But they didn't stop there. They went beyond that, and they added to that law. And that anybody else that they saw that didn't measure up to that, they moved away from in judgment. Right? That's the Pharisees. So that's this guy, Simon. And then you have Jesus, who shows up on the scene and says, I fulfilled the law. I created the law. In fact, I'm Lord of it. And Jesus doesn't move away in judgment of those who don't meet that standard. He comes toward them. And so even if you're new to church and new to Jesus, you can just pick up by that description that Jesus wasn't too popular amongst the Pharisees. Right? They didn't like him too much. And so we come to this passage, though, where a, a Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner. And we're not told why, but what I can tell you is that there's several customary things that you would do for someone who came in your house in that day, right? And so the first thing you would do is you would anoint that person's head with oil as a sign of respect as they came to your house. The second thing you would do is you would kiss that person on the head as a sign of peace and a sign of friendship as you greeted one another. The third thing you would do is you walked in, and that day they're wearing sandals, they're walking all day, and so you can imagine how dusty and dirty their feet were. And so the host of that dinner would say, here's a bowl of water for you to clean your feet. These were just customary things to do in that day. And what we see in this passage is that Simon the Pharisee does none of that. And we learn from his criticism of Jesus in verse 39, his primary goal wasn't to connect with Jesus, but it was to evaluate Jesus. So that's Simon the Pharisee. That's who we're dealing with with him. And it's the second person we see in the story is the sinful woman. And this woman is in every way Simon's opposite, right? Verse 37, you see this word behold. That's an important word that you want to see in Scripture. The author, Luke, is pointing out that there's a transition taking place. That this is a person who walks in that shouldn't be there. That she's a different kind of person. And two times in the passage, it refers to her as a sinner, and as you read commentaries and scholars think, well, maybe she was a prostitute. Maybe she was just promiscuous. And, and we don't know because Luke doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that her sin was public, that everybody knew. So much so that the Pharisee is appalled 
that Jesus would have anything to do with this woman because it's known that she's a sinful woman. And so as we look at that, I, mean, I would imagine today, I know we're celebrating our year. I know a lot of you have been with us from the beginning, but I know that there's times when some of you may feel just like that woman may have felt. Like, Jesus, if you only knew what this person have done, has done, you wouldn't want anything to do with them. That's what the Pharisee's telling Jesus. And some of you may feel like that as you walk in this morning. It's like, Jesus, if you only knew what, I would, what I've done, you wouldn't want anything to do with me. Maybe you feel that way about people in this room. As you look around the room and you look down the road, maybe you think, I mean, if these people only knew. Listen, as we look at this text, you need to know Jesus knows everything about this woman. And he knows everything about you. And yet, he doesn't back away. What does he do? He draws near. And he does that with you this morning. And so as a church, we do that too. And so if you're here this morning, this is your first time, we want you to continue to stick with us, to learn about Jesus, to meet him, just like this sinful woman did, and be changed by him. That that's what he invites us into. And what's interesting is you look at this, this interaction in verses 37 and 38, she does everything that Simon does not. You see that? She does everything that Simon the Pharisee does not. Notice, look at the text, she kisses not just his head, but his feet. She anoints not just his head, but his feet. And not just with oil, but with perfume. It's a sign of worship. And then it says she is weeping. The word in the original language literally means to rain down. So she's crying uncontrollably, and she washes his feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair. So as you look at these two figures in this text, Simon the Pharisee, the sinful woman, there's a stark contrast in the way they interact with Jesus. And we're going to see why that's important. Look at verse 40. Verse 40 says this. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love more? Simon answered, this, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you, Go in peace. So Jesus gives an illustration to Simon. We said this last week, Jesus is an amazing speaker and teacher, and he has a great illustration. He's making the direct link between forgiveness and love. That when you realize there's a debt that's been canceled, that you have an affection, a thankfulness, a gratitude toward the one who canceled that debt. And you would as well, just in human terms, if somebody cancels a debt that you owe, 
There's an affection that rises up within you for that person who canceled the debt. And Jesus is recounting all of these actions we just read about from this woman, and he's bringing it full circle in this illustration. In verse 47, look at the verse. Verse 47, he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven, little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. So as we look at that, and we, as we look at this link between forgiveness and love, I want you to see two things that Jesus is not saying. The first thing is Jesus isn't saying you should sin more so you'll love more. Right? That's not the way it works. That's not God's economy. Right? So what he's saying is he's pointing out to Simon the Pharisee to say, she realizes her sin and her need. You don't. You see that? So Jesus isn't saying sin more, love more. He's pointing out the arrogance of the Pharisee who thinks there's only one sinner at this dinner. And Jesus is saying, no, there's, there's at least two. And you're one of them. You're in that category as well. The second thing that Jesus is not saying is that because she does these things, she's saved. He makes that clear, verse 50, your faith has saved you. That her actions were proof of forgiveness, not the prompt for forgiveness. Do you see that? So this is the big idea that Jesus is going to drive home, is that love displayed is evidence of forgiveness embraced. Do you see that? Love displayed is evidence, is proof of forgiveness embraced. So as we think about a visual, it's like this, that it starts with forgiveness. Right? The forgiveness we have through the person and work of Jesus. And so if you have received that forgiveness, if you've said, I, I throw up empty hands of faith in Jesus Christ, his person, his work, that he did it, you receive that forgiveness, what happens? It leads to love, right? You see that in this passage. It leads to love. And that when we understand how Jesus has loved us, that he came to earth, that he didn't sit back from afar, that he entered into human history, that he lived a perfect life, that he died the death we deserve, that he rose again, that he came to us, that love moved Jesus, when we understand that kind of love, it moves us, right? It moves us. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to pull back a little bit from this text. Um, but that's what we see in this passage, that's what you see in the Bible, is that love moves. Verses 37 and 38, before we pull out of this text, it's amazing. There's seven verbs earlier in these verses that are one sentence. Verses 37 and 38, it's one sentence by Luke. There's seven verbs. I don't know if you're an English teacher, but I would challenge you to write a sentence with seven verbs in it. Let me know how that goes. Right? But that's the only way Luke can describe the actions of this woman, that it's an active love. We see that in the Bible as we pull back. We see that in life. Right? So I've shared this story before, but I remember when I met the girl who is now my wife in college, and it was in a chemistry class. There you go. And I just saw her come around a corner, and she just smiled at me. She didn't say anything. She just smiled. And so I went home, and later that day I was on my couch, and I was just laying there, and I was talking to my roommate, and I was telling him about this girl that had smiled at me. And I was just like, you know, I think I, I, think I may love her. <laughs> and, you know, um, 
what would it be like to marry that girl? What would it be like to have kids with that girl? And my roommate is listening, just like, dude, she just smiled at you. And I'm like, I know, but what, what if? So she hadn't even talked to me yet. She just smiled at me. And by the way, singles, college students, just so you know, this is creepy 101. <laughs> so it worked for me, but I can't guarantee it's going to work for you. So just, just keep that in mind. But, but it did. And so you know what I didn't do at that moment is I realized this affection that was stirring up in me for this girl. You know what I didn't do? I didn't stay on the couch. I didn't keep playing video games, right? No, I got up, right? I got up, I figured out her class schedule. <laughs> over time, over time, just kind of naturally, I figured it out. And I would happen to run into her on her way to class. I joined a study group with her and three other girls. And I never studied. I just talked to this girl. I made her a mixtape. Because that's what you did back in the day. And I didn't stop there. I pursued her until by God's grace, it was college, it was crazy. She said yes. Right? Love never stands still. Do you see that? In life, in scripture, with Jesus, love never stands still. It moves. It moves us to action. And I think it does it in three ways. We see it in scripture. You see it in life. Devotion, declaration, and demonstration. You see it in Luke 7. You see it in the book of Acts. The, Acts, the book of Acts is a people who have been loved by Jesus, who have been forgiven by Jesus, and it compels them to action. Right? It's why it's called the book of Acts. You see it throughout the Bible. And so what we want to look at is if there is a love that moves and if that's how it should move us, how do we get there? I think there's two ways. First, we need to know what we need. We need to know what we need. We need to understand our need by understanding the weight of our sin. That Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That's any and all sin. And so sometimes what we do in our culture is we elevate certain sins, we downplay other sins, and what we see in the Bible is that God demands from us a pure heart and clean hands, and that anything that contradicts that is sin, and he punishes it with death and separation for eternity. Now, as I say that, and I transition from a, a funny story, maybe there's some a sinking weight in your stomach. And just so you know, that's a good thing. That's a weighty thing. The gravity, the weight of our sin against a holy, just, and righteous God, that we should feel that need. Whether you know Jesus or you don't, that we should be reminded of our need. We need to know what we need. That's part of the point that Jesus makes in this passage is the Pharisee, he doesn't think he's that bad. He doesn't know his need. And therefore, he's not moved to love like this sinful woman. So are you aware of your need? Are you aware of that? I know for me, um, when I get time alone with God, I try to just think through, God, search my heart. Tell me if there's any offensive way in me. And I start to think about my week. I start to think about my day. I don't write those things down. 
Because the goal is not to lead to depression. The goal of lead to is to lead to forgiveness. To realize the weight of my sin, but also the treasure of God's forgiveness. And so I just try to think through those things. Do you know what you need? And then the second thing, we need to know what we have. So sometimes we can go the opposite direction and we can minimize God's forgiveness. It can become numb or trite to us, specifically if you've been in the church for a long time. So even as we look at a passage on forgiveness, maybe you're in the midst of sin right now and maybe other people in your community group come around you and they say, you're, you're forgiven in Jesus. He's just, he's faithful to forgive if you confess. And maybe you've been in church so long that that's become numb and trite to you. Listen, you need to know what you have. Matthew 26, Jesus himself says that his, his blood is gonna be poured out for your sins. That he gives his life for your sins. If this has become numb, if this has become trite to you, you just need to listen to Jesus. You just need to read Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions. And so when I take that list of sins that's in my head, I want to mess that up against those verses, against the person and work of Jesus. I want to look to the cross and see how the cross has paid for all my sin, past, present, and future, the major and the minor, the big ones and the small ones, that Jesus has paid for that, that he has forgiven me. And so I thank Jesus for that forgiveness. So as you talk to Jesus, you need to ask him for forgiveness, but you need to end it with a thankfulness that he has actually forgiven you and that you can walk in that. When we realize what we need and we realize what we have in Jesus, something changes us. There's a love that is stirred up out of that. That when we have a desperation that meets a redemption, and when those two combine, it explodes in affection. Do you see that? It's a love that moves. And we wanna grasp that individually, but we also wanna grasp that as a church. And so we've talked about our story, we're a year into this thing, and you know, honestly, at the beginning, we just threw this thing out there and, and thought, maybe it will swim. <laughs> well, now we're a year in and it's swimming. The floaties are off, right? It's swimming, and so we want to ask, where is it swimming to? Where are we headed? And by God's grace, I believe this is where we're headed, that love moves, and it does so through Phoenix Bible Church. We talk about this aspect of love moves as part of our culture that we want to be intentional about building, and that's going to be our theme for the next year, a love that moves us. And so we have that opportunity in the city of Phoenix Maybe you've lived in Phoenix for a long time. Maybe you just moved here. Maybe you're thinking of moving away. Don't do that. But the city of Phoenix, most recent data says 1.5 million people live in Phoenix alone. That's not counting Glendale, Scottsdale, Tempe. That's just the city of Phoenix, 1.5 million people. It's the sixth largest city in the U.S. The U.S. Census Bureau estimates that by 2030, the population of Phoenix will grow to 2.2 million and that the population of Greater Phoenix will reach 6.3 million. It's a lot of people. Barna, a research company that does research for churches, 
just listed Phoenix as the ninth least church city in America, which is a bit surprising, right? For all the bumper stickers that we see, I was surprised. I was like, really? I need to check that. That's why I wanted to put this image. So you would, you would trust the Barner Group that it's the ninth least church city in America. And I think it is. We don't realize how many people are in the urban sprawl of Phoenix, right? There's so many people. We need more churches to reach them with the gospel. And so there's a great need for a love that moves. Listen, I want you to hear this, that there's not just a need for another church that just attends on a Sunday and consumes. There's a need for a church where a group of people get this idea of a love that they receive, but also moves them out. That's transformative, not only for them, but for people in our community and in our city. There's a need for a church like that. So there's a great need as we look at the city of Phoenix, and I think it works itself out in three ways that I mentioned earlier, devotion, declaration, and demonstration. It works itself out in devotion. So that when we gather on Sundays, this isn't called religion. This isn't tradition. We're not checking a box. You don't get a gold star at the end of the year. We come, we gather in devotion to Jesus because we anticipate that God will move. And so every Sunday at 9.30 a.m., there's a group of people who pray for that, who show up early. You should join them in the media center. They pray anticipating that, that God will move because there's a love that moves us to devotion because we believe during this time that Jesus is gonna break us free from sin, that he's gonna fix our eyes on him, and that he's going to empower us to live that out in our communities and in our city. Love moves in a devotion. And so we've seen that over the last year. There's a guy in our church. Both of these guys are here today. And one of them came on the first, uh, the first time he came and talked to one of our greeters. And that greeter told me afterwards, he just said, hey, this guy came to church. It was his first Sunday. And he just told me this. He said, this place just feels like home. And I'm like, I don't even know how that could happen on, on one Sunday. But it did. And he said, I just, I know where I'm going to be every Sunday at Phoenix Bible Church. There's a devotion. Another guy in our church, he uh, is in the military, didn't have a truck. And so he got up in the morning at 8 a.m. We start at 10. And he caught a bus to come to church two hours before. And he never took another bus that people gave him rides, that they, he joined their community group, he got his truck. So now he comes and he's on our setup team. And he comes at 8 a.m., but not because he has to, because he gets to help and be involved in what Jesus is doing. There's a devotion. Every time we meet, every time we meet is somebody's first Sunday. And there's opportunity there. And so this is why we want you to invite a friend to this time. That we anticipate that God will move. So love moves us to devotion. It has and it will continue to do that. Love moves us to declaration. They're going to throw up a, a, our community group map on the screen. And this is where we declare Jesus to one another throughout the weeks in, home, in homes. And just so you know, this is Phoenix Bible Church. This is Phoenix Bible Church. The church is not a building, it's a people. It's the people of God, and we are strategically placed throughout this valley in pockets of this city to declare Jesus to one another. You see that? But not just to one another, to those outside of our church as well. And so as you walked in, you got this fall five card. 
this fall five card, to just be intentional about writing five names down on this card, that you would take that, you would actually write down names. Start with your home, your hobby, and your hood, right? And think of five names of people who, not a Christian, not in a church, not doing very well in their life, people that you could reach out to and write those five names and at the very least start praying for them. That we would, as a church, take that initiative together. So maybe as you think about 1.5 million people, that's daunting, just think of five, right? Just think of five names, write those down before you leave. Get with your spouse, put that on your fridge and begin to pray for those people. What if all those expressions you saw on the screen of community groups, what if all those people, what if all of us in here started praying for five people? What would God do? What would God do with us? What would God do with them? The last thing we see love move in is demonstration. And primarily in two ways for us in this next year. Hope Women's Center is the first one. Hope Women's Center has about 150 women per month. They have a few locations throughout the valley. They have one really close to us. We met with them and just asked, what are your primary needs? They talked about the women that come and see them are struggling with domestic violence, with poverty, with crisis pregnancy. And they see about 150 of those each month. I asked the director, because you always want to just ask the straight up question, like how many people do you have? How many people do you actually need? She said, we have 15, we need 30. This is down the street from our church. And so we want to see love move and demonstration. We want to partner with them. So there's already a few ladies who are doing that. Uh, and we want to see more of that. We want to see you guys come alongside. There's different ways. There's mentoring, teaching, organizing donations, really anything you could do just to go up there and serve these women. And we're going to do a donation soon for them as a church. And so that's one way it demonstrates itself. The second way is Verdi, right, Stephen Frankie? Verdi Park after school program. This is in our backyard. The Frankies, a couple in our church, kind of lead this uh, movement around us. This is right behind us, right? This is right behind us, kids that are in a tough environment. I was talking to the Frankies and just asking more questions. They said that there's at least two rival gangs in this neighborhood, right behind us, that kids can get jumped into as early as 12 years old. That typically most of their families and most of their homes have five to 10 people on average living with them. And the parents are often not in the picture. If they are in the picture, they're uninvolved or ill-equipped. This is in our backyard. We want to make an impact. We want to see love move us to demonstrate the gospel to these kids and to these families. And so they need three to four more volunteers. Tuesday at 4.30, you can come and go. You can help out. A few of our people went last week, and it was amazing just to start that process. And so as we think about love moves, specifically with demonstration, there's a form in the back on the iPad, on the computer. It just says that. It says love moves, and you can pick one of these areas to launch out into and serve. You can do that as a community group. We'd love for you to be involved, and as a church, focus on these two specific things, right? So there's a lot of birds we could shoot. We want to shoot these two, right? We want to go after these two this next year. As we see love move us to devotion, to declaration, and also demonstration, this is what we want to be a part of as a church. And by God's grace, this is what we believe he's shaping and building, and we want you to be a part of that. This is where we're headed, right? If you, if you wonder What's next? This is what's next. 
that we want to see a love that moves in our devotion, declaration, demonstration. And as we close, um, you know, coming up to this day, I talk to a lot of people. I talk to a lot of people in our church. I talk to a lot of people and just heard from people from the outside. And as I was talking to them, just like, it's crazy. It's been one year. Can you believe it? All those things. I found myself saying, and I found other people saying things like, you know, we really shouldn't even be here. Like, if you really consider everything we've been through as a church, like, Phoenix Bible Church really shouldn't even exist. I said that. And as I began to pray and reflect this week, I began to realize, and honestly, God began to convict me of this, that that's selling God way too short, isn't it? That that couldn't be further from the truth. That we absolutely should be here. In fact, God made sure of that, right? God made sure, God orchestrated this whole process so that these people in this place, in this part of the city, would be here. That God has us here. That he's had us here for a year, and by God's grace, he'll have us here in the years to come. And so today, as we look at that, there is much to rejoice, right? There's much to rejoice, but there's also much to anticipate. That this is just the beginning. That we want to see a love that moves in us and through us for his glory, for our joy. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for a love that, that moves. I thank you for Jesus, that he came to us. That he didn't stand back far away. That he got up close in the messiness of our lives, in the messiness of our world that he got up close and he entered into it. He said, I want these people in the mess. This is who I came for. This is who I died for. This is who I rose for. That that's the truth we celebrate ultimately today. So God, we lift your name high. This isn't about Phoenix Bible Church. This is about Jesus Christ who is alive, who is faithful, and who is on the move in Phoenix. And we get to be a part of that. I want to rejoice in that. I want to rejoice with these men and women. But God, I want to anticipate how that's going to continue as we lock arms together, as we shed other things to focus on this thing, building the kingdom of God for eternity, that there's nothing else worth giving our life for. Father, help us. We desperately need it. We ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.